0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. The last two weeks, we've heard some wonderful messages by Pastor Bob from 2 Peter. Uh, we heard one on our future focus from 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. And then uh, last week, we heard one on our present pursuit from Second Peter three fourteen through 18. Those were wonderful messages. Today we're going to change gears a little bit, but this message is still tied to that, and you'll see that. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Mark. So we'll be moving to a gospel. I thought I'd I'd change things up a little bit from, you know, we've heard Romans, Proverbs, 2 Peter. I thought, let's go to a narrative. Let's look at one of the gospels. So we'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And the title of the message is, I am walking on the water. You say, that's kind of strange. You'll see as we go on. We're basically going to be focusing on worshiping Jesus as God today in a world that doesn't. As I listened to Bob preach last week, the last sentence of the last verse really really stuck with me. It says this in 2 Peter 3, uh, 318. To him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to him... Be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And that's what we want to do today as we look at this passage. We want to give Jesus Christ the glory as God incarnate. We want him to be magnified. We want him to be lifted up in this passage. In an effort to do this, we really need to understand what the main point of this passage is. Many times you hear this passage about the walking on the water. You hear this passage preached. And many times they'll preach it in a way that says, you know, keep your eyes on Jesus in the storm and you'll make it through the hard times in life. And that'll be brought out as the main point of this passage. Is that an implication? Perhaps, but that's not the main point of the passage. Not at all. This passage is about Christ being revealed as God incarnate. That's the main point of this passage. And you see that all throughout the passage. Yes, there are implications for us. We'll see that. But we we dare not take those implications and make those the main point. I think of a crown with jewels on it. This is how it was explained to me in seminary. You've got this crown with all these little jewels on the side. Beautiful jewels. But then right in the middle... You've got this big crown jewel. And when we're looking at a passage of scripture, we don't want to make the mistake of taking one of these little jewels and making that the main focus. When those jewels just support and and point to that main crown jewel, and the main crown jewel of this text is Jesus being magnified as God. I mean, it's clearly seen in the syntax of the scripture, of, of this passage, it begins in verse 45 as Jesus sends the crowds away. And we'll read the whole passage, but I just want to explain this a little bit. Jesus sends the crowds away. and This is where this pointing to his deity begins. We then see one event after another proving the deity of Christ in miracles. First of all, we see his divine vision. He sees them out on the lake. And then secondly, we see him walk on the water. And then the climax comes in the exact middle of the passage where Jesus proclaims his deity. It's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. It's like um, stepping stones up to the the climax or the point. And then from the climax coming down the other side, you see the two more miracles. You see Jesus stop the storm and then he goes and he, he heals the sick. And then it's back into the ministry. So that's what we're going to look at through this passage. But before we can do that, we need to set the context of everything that's going on here. First of all, we need to remember that Mark is called what? It's called a gospel. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So any passage that we're going to teach on or read about in the gospels, it can't be divorced from that context. You can't just take a passage from a gospel pull it out of the gospel and have it focus on something else when it's in the context of the gospel. And in our particular passage, it focuses on, as I said, the deity of Christ because if you get the deity of Christ wrong, you get the gospel wrong. Now, we remember that. Now, as we come through the first five chapters, we come to chapter 6, and that's where our account takes place. And from verse 1 through 12, we just see Jesus t- speaking in his hometown. He's teaching in his hometown. And not, people don't believe him. They're like, how can he be the Messiah? We know him. We know his mom. We know his, his presumed dad. He can't be the Messiah. A prophet is not without honor except for in his own hometown. So he doesn't do many miracles there. And then we see from verses 7 through 13, he, takes, he, he sends out the twelve. By twos. He sends them out to do miracles, to heal the sick, to proclaim a message of repentance. Uh, Matthew 10.1 says he, they were given the power to heal every kind of disease and sickness. You see, our account can also be seen in Matthew and in John, not just in Mark. Then from verses 14 through 29, we have this strange, it seems strange, this strange account of John the Baptist's death. You know, you're going, you got these miracles, Jesus is going along, doing all these things, and all of a sudden, boom, Mark throws this whole account of how John the Baptist died. And when we first read that, you think, that's a little strange. Why did he do that? Well, we can see why he did it. Partly, we see that Herod proclaims in verse 16, John, whom I have be- beheaded, has risen. So from there, you see, Mark was written to Gentiles primarily. That's the primary audience for Mark's gospel is for the Gentiles. So he doesn't give us a whole lot of information like the genealogies aren't in Mark. There's not a lot about John the Baptist. There's a little bit, but not a lot because this was to Gentiles. But he did need to explain John a little bit. So he gives us this explanation of what happened to John. We don't want to forget that John, is a, he plays an essential role in the coming of the Messiah. So he gives them this account of, they knew who Herod was. So when Herod says this, he tells them, well, here's what happened with John. And then he gets right back into the text. Now, after this account in chapter 6, we see the apostles, they come back from being sent out. The 12 were sent out. They come back. They're excited. They want to tell Jesus everything that's been going on, all the things that they've been doing. They're tired. They're excited. And he says, let's get in the boat, and we're going to go over... a secluded place for you to rest. So they get in a boat. They go over to rest. We'll read in the text that the crowds see where they're going and the crowds follow them. One thing you have to understand is in the book of Mark, in all the Gospels, but in Mark specifically, you see all the time the word immediately, immediately, immediately. And you see a lot of times it says these um, large crowds were pressing in on him. So in Mark, you see it. It just, it almost, you can almost feel the weight of these crowds and this this fast pace. It's always going on in Mark. They're moving, 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 and they're, they're just these disciples are probably exhausted. And now they're thinking, okay, we're going to go get a time to relax here. Well, here come the crowds, and us, like the disciples, are probably thinking, man, I just want a little time to myself. I just want some time to rest. But that's not what Jesus, that's not his perspective. Now, verse 34 tells us that when he saw them, when he saw these crowds coming to him, he felt compassion for them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he wanted, to, he wanted to help them. He wanted to minister to them. And so the disciples, probably rolling their eyes, going, oh, here we go again. They're willing to help, but Jesus had this compassion. And he felt, remember, there was 5,000 men there that's not including the women and children that were wanting, that were listening to him. He's teaching them. And then the text says he fed them with five loaves and two fish. 5,000 men, so there was probably 20, 25,000 people there. Imagine that 25,000 people, and he feeds them all. And that brings us to our text. And from this point on in the text, we see the deity of Christ exemplified in this section of the text specifically in five ways. So we're going to look at that. But before we do that, let me read the text and then I'll read and then I'll pray. So Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45, right after he fed the 5,000 men. Verse 45, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said, said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, And moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat. Immediately the people recognized him. And ran about the whole country. And began to carry here and there on their pallets. Those who were sick. To the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered. Villages or cities or countryside. They were laying the sick in the marketplace. And imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it. Were being cured. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you so much uh, for this text. Lord, help us to uh, glorify you as we uh, we live our lives, Father. We want you to be magnified in our lives, in our homes and in our church as we strive for holiness, as we pursue uh, a righteous life. Lord, I just pray that it would bring honor and glory to you. As we're about the business of evangelism and everything that we do in our lives, it brings glory to you. I pray now that as we we look into this text, you would clear our minds from all distractions and keep us focused on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, the first thing I want you to notice here, even before we gaze at these five, I guess, crown jewels, or the five points that we're going to look at, that point to the deity of Christ, before we do that, I want you to see how authoritative and purposeful Jesus is here at the beginning. It says in verse 45, immediately, there it is, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. So he authoritatively tells his disciples to get into the boat and go. And then he begins to dismiss the crowds. Now, why did he dismiss the crowds this time? The last time when they went to the secluded place, right before he fed the 5,000, he didn't dismiss them. He wanted them to stay, and he fed them. But he's dismissing them this time. It's getting late, for one. But also, if we look at the book of John, chapter 6, we see that they wanted to take him. They wanted to force him to be king right there and then and there. They wanted to make him king. Well, it wasn't his time yet. Plus, he knew the, uh, the superficial motives of the crowds. They came to him before. They wanted food They wanted to be healed. They were essentially just wanting an eternal welfare state. That's what they wanted. And Jesus knew their motives. And you see it elsewhere in Scripture. He talks about that. And the disciples, he sends them away because he knew their hearts as well. And he knew how easily they could be influenced by these crowds. If these crowds wanted to take Jesus and make him king, that could have influenced the disciples. Yeah, that sounds good. So he sends them away, and then he sends the crowds away. Now after they're all gone, he has some time to rest, but what does he do? Look at the text, verse 46. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So Jesus knew that the only true rest that he would find that he needs is is through talking to the Father, through prayer. Does he need physical rest? Yes, he does. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Even Jesus needed to sleep, but he knew the, the imperative nature of praying, He was exhausted. Everyone was gone. He could have had some some me time, but he goes to the Father. What do you suppose he was praying for, up there on the mountain? The text doesn't tell us. But I mean, just if we look at the end of the passage in verse fifty-two, we'll we'll get there. But it says that after the feeding of the five thousand, the disciples had no insight from that account. Their hearts were hardened. After the feeding of the five thousand, so perhaps on the mountain Jesus is praying for them, for their hearts to be softened. We don't know. Perhaps he's asking God to reveal Him as God to them. But he's praying. Now, as we come to our text, the first major event that we see here that exists the deity of, that exhibits the deity of Christ is His divine vision, right here in the text. Verse 48, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone in the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by. Look at that. They were in the middle of the sea at this point. The middle of the Sea of Galilee, he was on the mountain. The storm was in full vigor. It was late. Yet the text tells us he saw them straining at the oars. That's an indication of his deity. He could divinely see them struggling at the oars. It wasn't like they were just a couple of hundred feet away. It wasn't like they were from here to you know, the parking lot and the sun was shining and he could see them. There was no, no storm, no. They were in the middle of the sea. Their destination that they were going to, which was Bethsaida. By the way, just a a fun fact for you. Whenever you hear a Hebrew word and the first word is Beth, Beth Bethsaida, Bethlehem, it means house of. So Bethlehem is house of bread. Bethsaida, house of fish. Just, that was free. (laughs) Anyways. Um, So that's about five miles from where they're going. And in John, we see that they were about three or four miles out in the middle So they were in the middle of the lake and he's way up on this mountain and he sees them straining at the oars. And as I said, it was a storm. This wasn't a little drizzle. No, the text says, for the wind, in verse 48, for the wind was against them. Where, if we look in Matthew 14, 24, we're told they were being battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. Or John Uh, 618 it says the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing if you've ever been on the big lake or on the ocean when a storm and the winds are blowing and the waves are going it's not fun these guys were seasoned fishermen and we learned they were terrified so this was a bad storm and if that wasn't enough it was pitch black it says it took place at the fourth watch of the night Now, what's that? Well, the Romans had divided the night up into four um, sections. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So somewhere in there, they were out in the middle of the sea in this horrible storm. And no doubt, the clouds were covering the moon. So there was no, you didn't have a flashlight, anything. It was just pitch black. And it says, Jesus saw them. That's an indication of his deity. He saw them straining at the oars. And notice a side note. He saw them way before they saw him. He was aware of their circumstances. He knew that they were struggling. He knew what they were going through. Nothing surprises him about their circumstances. And by the way, nothing surprises him about your circumstances. He knows what you're going through. He was caring for them even when they didn't know it. Even when they thought all hope was lost. They thought, he doesn't know what's going on here. He can't see us. He's not here with us. He was in control. He was taking care of them. And notice it doesn't just say he saw them in the boat either. It says he saw them straining at the oars. So he saw them struggling and straining and just crying out in desperation. He saw them doing that, and I find it interesting that he didn't stop the storm from the mountain. He saw them straining, yet he allowed them to continue in this storm. And then he 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 no doubt walked down the mountain and had to walk up to the shore. Still didn't stop the storm. He continued to let them struggle to fight this violent storm for a while. We have no indication, though, that they, were, that they were praying and asking him for help either. We don't know. They were probably just trying to... It says they were straining at the oars, so they were trying to get this under control in their own strength. And it wasn't happening. Now, understand, he allowed this to continue for their benefit, not for his. He... He he wanted them to see without a doubt that he was responsible for stopping the storm. And if he would have just stopped it from the mountain or stopped it from the shore, there could have been a, a little bit of doubt in their mind. Well, maybe it just stopped. He wanted them to be clear. He stopped the storm. Only God incarnate could rescue them. So is that, is that clear to you this morning? Do you want, if you're here today and, and you're struggling or you don't understand that, do you understand that only God can rescue you no matter what you're going through? Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and I will give you rest. Now, before we move on to the next attribute, I want you to notice That the apostles weren't going through this because they disobeyed God. He told them to go and they went. They obeyed. Yet they were still going through this, even in their obedience. Now we see in verse 45 that Jesus told them to go and they went. They were struggling even in their obedience. And the second divine attribute that we see here, after his divine vision, the second attribute we see exhibited by Christ is his supernatural control of the laws of nature. It's exhibited in his walking on the water. Look at verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Think about that. We read that and we're just like, oh, he's walking on the water. Really? He came to them walking on the sea. If that doesn't drive us to our knees and worship, I don't know what will. What more evidence could we want that Christ is God? Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to walk on water? It's not happening. Well, actually, where's Gary? I talked to Gary earlier today and he said he saw somebody walk on water once. They are going 38 miles an hour behind a boat, but barefoot. <laughs> so. But most people, you won't see walking on the water. Only God. When speaking of God, Job 9.8 tells us that God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19 says, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty water. Only God walks on the water. We then have this strange statement in the text. We're reading the strange statement. It says, and he intended to pass them by. He intended to pass them by. What do you mean? Was he, was he just going to keep going and just get to the shore and wait till they came? No. If you look at the, the original text, the Greek word for pass by... It could also be translated, come up to or come along. In other words, he wanted them, he wanted to be in close proximity to them so they, they could see him. It's the, the context, is that we need to remember the context when we're looking at these words. So this tells us that he, he wasn't just trying to get to the other side. His intention was to come near them so that they could see him. He, come, he intended to come in close proximity to them. Now we see here in verse forty nine and fifty that he did in fact they did in fact see him, but they don't they didn't think it was him. The text says they thought it was a ghost and they were terrified. Verse forty nine, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. I mean, we gotta give these guys a little leeway, right? As I said, they've they're They've been rowing for hours, probably about four or more hours out there, rowing. They're tired. They're just exhausted. They've never seen anybody walk on the water. You know? And there was, there was pagan, you know, pagan teachings about the spirits of the dead in the sea coming up as ghosts. And so if you have a worldly mindset and you're thinking that way, you might think, oh, it was a ghost. We're dying. We're going to die here. But they were think that's because they had a worldly mindset. They were terrified. They didn't think it was Jesus. So under normal circumstances, this would be impossible. If you have an earthly mindset. The text says they were terrified at the prospect of seeing a ghost. So you have to be careful because fear has the potential to just cripple you. Fear can just cripple us if we think with a worldly perspective. Is that the main point of the text? No, but the text is pointing that out. That is an implication here. Fear can cripple us, whatever, that may, whatever the fear may be. These men had an earthly mindset, and they needed Christ to save them. They couldn't save themselves. These big, strong fishermen were at the mercy of the storm. And they were beaten down and terrified. Now, at this point, when the men at their lowest, when they're desperate, terrified, and without hope, at that point, we see the crown jewel of the text. The main focus of the whole account comes to a climax. And we see Jesus proclaiming himself as deity in verse 50. The text says, Take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. You say, well, how does that proclaim his deity? Well, here you go. You look to the original language again. The significance of the statement needs to be explained a little bit. In the original text, the statement would go like this. Take courage, I am. That's the original statement. Take courage, I am. This goes all the way back to Exodus 3.14 when Moses is at the burning bush. And he says to, to God, who should I tell them is sending me to, to Egypt? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Same word. The ego in me. Tell them that the ego in me sent you or tell them I am sent you. This is the name of God. So for Jesus to say, take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. That should bring so much comfort to those men. We see the I am's all over the book of John, right? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Mark has his I am too. I am. That's the climax of the passage here. This is what everything is pointing to. You've got these miracles showing the deity of Christ, but this climax right here, I am. Jesus proclaiming his deity. Now, in Matthew 14, from verses 24 to 23, remember I said this account is in Matthew as well, we have this whole account of Peter walking on the sea. He says, if it's you, tell me to come to you, and I will. Why does Mark not include this? We don't know. Some people would say, well, because Peter was the one who was um, telling Mark what to write, and he didn't want to be, you know, he didn't want any attention to be on him. Maybe. Maybe. But John doesn't include it either. So we don't know why Mark didn't include it. But he didn't include it. So I'm not, you know, I don't know why, but he didn't. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because that's not in our text. Go to Matthew and you can read that account. But it's not in our text. In our text we see in verse 51 that after proclaiming his deity, he gets into the boat and the storm stops. So that brings us to the next thing that shows his deity His deity is exhibited in his stopping the storm. Verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. When God gets into the boat, the storm stops. And they're just amazed. They're floored. They can't believe it. And this wasn't some well, the storm slowly started to you know, dissipate a little bit and over maybe a few hours it stopped. No, this was, that's it, flat, it's done. They were amazed, they were astonished. In Matthew, we see that at this point, the disciples worshiped him, saying, you are certainly the son of God. Now, their faith was still small but they worshiped him. And as we we move on in the text, we have another seemingly strange statement that comes up right after we're told that they were utterly astonished. The strange statement in verse 52, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning. It says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of their loaves, but their heart was hardened. So after Jesus fed the 20, 25,000 people Their hearts were hardened. They didn't gain any insight. That's amazing. But their hearts were hardened. But not this time. They were utterly astonished. And they worshipped him. You see, when they saw these miracles of Jesus in the past, they weren't thinking deeply about them. They were just moving immediately, going on to the next thing, saying, this is great, this is great, let's move on. They weren't meditating on these truths of who Christ is. They weren't thinking deeply about it. And how often do we do that? How often do we just read these things and say, oh, that's great. Yeah, this is what Jesus did. But we don't think deeply. We don't meditate on these truths of who Christ is and the reality of these things. This isn't some TV show. This is truth. We need to be meditating on the things of Christ and on who Christ truly is. And how do we approach Christ when we come to him in prayer? Do we, do we approach him flippantly? Do we approach him casually? Not understanding who he is? Yes, we, we, do have the, we are able to go before the throne room of God. But still, remember who you're going before. Now, as we close out the text, the last characteristic of deity that we see in Christ is his healing power. So we've seen this this build-up, as I said. And the last thing we see, coming down the other side, is his healing power. His deity is exhibited again. Verse 53 says, When they had crossed over, they came to a land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Excuse me. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak, that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So they come back to the shore. He gets back on shore. The people are coming. And now he begins healing people again. Immediately, the people recognized him. Notice that. The the disciples in the boat, they didn't recognize him. The people immediately recognized him. What a contrast. You see, when when things are going good, when there's a a potential of being fed or being healed, oh, yeah, you recognize him. But when things are hard, when you don't really believe that he he can do this, You don't recognize him. He couldn't couldn't allow me to go through this. That can't be something, you know, according to his will. You don't recognize him when things are going hard. But when things are going easy, when he's at the shore and he's ready to feed you and heal you, oh, this is great. I recognize him there. Even the strongest followers of Christ may not recognize him at times in their life. They may become terrified and forget who Christ is. Something going on in your life where you're, you're a little fearful of, of, something, uh, of something potentially happening and you, you're fearful. Remember who Christ is. Remember that you're his child. You've been born again. Remember that. He works all things together for good to those who love him. Even though things may not seem good to you, you can be confident that they are good. Remember who he is. Remember he transformed you. Now, that's not, as I said, that's not the main point, but there are implications here. So as we continue on in the text, we see that the crowds were just, they were just laying people in the marketplace and saying, can they just touch your, your, the fringe of your, your gown? Where do you think they got that? Well, if we go back to Chapter 5, we see the widow, right, who had the the issue of blood for 12 years. She comes up to him and she just says, if I can just touch him. And she just touches his gown and she's healed. And no doubt the people saw this and they were like, oh, man, we can just touch him. So they, they begin doing that. If you're here today and you're a Christian, How often are you going to to Christ and just worshiping him, meditating on his word, truly just spending time in the word, looking at, at, at the one who walked on the water as God incarnate? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you're here today and the things I'm saying are kind of odd to you, I would implore you to turn to Christ, to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your lustful thoughts and your your lying. Turn away from those things and turn to the one who can save you, Christ, who is God incarnate. People will say, well, Joe, you can't be saved by keeping the law. The law doesn't save. No, the law doesn't save, but the law condemns. It surely condemns. And it will condemn you to hell. You must repent and trust in Christ. You can't save yourself. Just as these disciples of Christ were helpless to save themselves, they could only turn to the one who was God incarnate. They needed someone greater than themselves, someone who was truly in control. And so do we. That someone is God in human flesh. So turn to him today if you, if you have an interest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Lord, as we continue to uh, think about your goodness and uh, your greatness, I pray that uh, we would bring glory and honor to you through our lives as we strive for holiness. And we just uh, pray for the rest of this day that you would watch over us, Lord, keep us focusing on you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.